Kings chapter 17. Notice the title of the message reads, God's Good and Gracious Provision in the Life of an Unlikely Mother. And to start things off, we'll just read verses 8 through 16, though in this message we'll cover the entire chapter. Speaking about Elijah, then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and then afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. God, we pray that you would allow us to understand this text and this chapter, that you would teach us this morning about your grace and your provision, and that we at the same time might see a mom who walked by faith and not by sight, so that each one of our moms here would be able to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this privilege of being here, honoring moms, reading your word, and sitting under the teaching of the scripture. And I pray these things would be for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. Well, this morning, we obviously have the privilege of honoring our moms. And we're so grateful that you're here with us this morning as a mother. I'm so thankful to have been born to a godly mom who raised me under the teaching and admonition of the Lord to be able to be married to my wife, who's also a godly mother, doing the same thing for our kids. And the truth is, no matter who you are this morning or where you're from or what differences may exist uh, among us, we all have a mother. You were all born to somebody. And for the most of us, we were actually raised in that home with our mother, and for many of us, that mother pointed us to Christ. And so we have much to be thankful for this morning as we think a little bit about Mother's Day, someone who loved us, someone who sacrificed for us, someone who pointed us to the Lord Jesus and helped make us who we are today. And so there's various uh, poems and statements that we could read this morning, and I do want to read just a couple of them for you as we think about how grateful we are for our, our moms. In fact, listen to this this one poem, Mom, you may be treated like the maid. You may be treated like the gardener. You may be treated like the daycare. You may be treated like the chauffeur. You may be treated like many things. But one thing is for sure, you will always be loved. For a father's work may be from sun up till sundown, but a mother's work is never down. All that I have am and hope to be, I owe to you. So this is for all the times I forgot to say 
thank you. And I think each one of us would echo that poem in our own hearts of all the times our mom has showed us incredible love that we could say thank you to all of our moms this morning. There was a young boy who said to his mother, how old were you when I was born? His mother replied, 23. The boy answered, wow, that's a lot of time we missed spending together. (laughs) Precious perspective from that little boy, isn't it? Well, listen to a few more tributes on the influence that moms have over their children. My mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am, I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral, intellectual, and physical education I received from her, George Washington. All that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my angel mother, Abraham Lincoln, who also said, I remember my mother's prayers, and they have always followed me. They have clung to me all my life. Another famous uh, world leader, let France have good mothers, and she will have good sons. Napoleon Bonaparte. The most important thing a father can do for his children is to love their mother. Author unknown, though I like to think I said that. <laughs> Listen to this acrostic of the word mother by Howard Johnson. M is for the million things she gave me. O means only that she's growing old. T is for the tears that she shed to save me. H is for her heart of purest gold. E is for her eyes with love light shining. R means right, and right she'll always be. Put them all together and they spell mother, a word that means the world to me. How precious it is that we could come together today and just celebrate God's gift in giving us mothers. And it's always a blessing on Mother's Day to consider all the wonderful quotes, many that I just read, and poems to our moms. But we need to be reminded this morning that the Bible itself has much to say about what it means to be a godly mom. And we would rightfully think about some of these verses as well today. Listen to Psalm 139, 13. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Proverbs 1, 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 31, 1. What we like to think of is the proverb of the excellent wife, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. Isaiah 66, 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so we see the scripture has much to say about encouraging us about our godly moms and the role they play in our life. And this morning I want to highlight God's good and gracious provision in the life of an unlikely 
Bible times mother. And so we're going to be taking a look at this widow this morning, entitled here as the widow of Zarephath. And while it is true that this woman was indeed a widow, what I want to focus on this morning is the fact that she was also a mother. Widow focuses on what she was not. She was not the wife of a living husband, for apparently her husband had died of some unknown reason. The word mother focuses on what she was. She was the mother of this child and had the sole responsibility of caring for her child's well-being and livelihood. You may not be aware of this, but this unlikely mother, this widow of Zarephath, is mentioned not once, but twice in the New Testament. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 4, and we'll see where the Lord Jesus himself mentions this very mother by name. Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 30, we're reading about a section of Scripture where Jesus headed into Nazareth and begins to demonstrate to those Jews in his hometown that God's love, that God's grace goes beyond ethnic Israel and even reaches out into the Gentile nations. Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 30, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But I tell you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which uh, which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And so the question is, what is it about this woman of Zarephath, this Sidonian from Sidon that Jesus mentioned, would make the people in his hometown want to kill him? Well, basically... Here in this passage, we read how Jesus Christ is reminding, again, those in Israel that the gospel goes on beyond those in Israel to those outside of Israel, those in Sidon, and those also up in Syria. Naaman was the general of the Syrian army who came down into Israel in 2 Kings chapter 5, and Elisha was responsible for telling him to go wash in the river Jordan seven times, which he finally did and was healed. And we read also in that story about uh, Naaman the Syrian that he came to saving faith. And then he walked with God. Well, in the same way, this woman, this widow of Zarephath, an unlikely lady, became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here that Jesus is honoring her as a woman who was a Gentile who came to faith. There were a lot of widows in Israel, but God honored this widow who was in Sidon. So that's the first place she's mentioned in the New Testament. The second place is in the Hall of Faith. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11, she's mentioned here by a very strong inference. While she's not mentioned by name in Hebrews 11, there's a very strong inference here. As we know, this chapter is all about honoring godly men and women who walked by faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 35, we read this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, 
put foreign armies to flight. Pretty impressive list. Listen to what's next in verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. For were, uh, some were tortured, refused to accept release, so they all might rise again to a better life. You say, well, who is the author talking about in the beginning of verse 35? Well, best you can tell if you read the entire Old Testament, there's only two ladies who had a son who was raised from the dead. Now, there might have been more, but only two are recorded in Scripture. It's this woman, the widow of Zarephath, as well as in 2 Kings chapter 4, there's the woman of Shunem, who also had a son who died, and God raised that child back to life. And so there's no doubt from reading from the lips of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and reading from this account in Hebrews chapter 11 that this widow, this mother of Zarephath, was a believer that she walked by faith, that she was a woman committed to God. While initially she was most likely born in a pagan society, as we'll see here, she became a believer and a mom who obeyed God. And so in order for us to fully see God's good and gracious provision to this unlikely mother of Zarephath, let's take a look at the entire chapter of 1 Kings chapter 17, which I've broken down into three headings this morning. If you're taking notes, you see on your outline, the first major heading is this. We're going to look at God's provision in difficult times. And we'll start off by just looking at verse 1. And here's your first blank if you are taking notes this morning. We're looking at the superiority of Elijah's God. The superiority of Elijah's God. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, you need to know in the context, this is the first time in the Bible where Elisha, the prophet, is Elijah, the prophet is mentioned. He's being introduced here, and he starts his ministry off with a bang. He doesn't waste any time getting into the life of King Ahab, who was a wicked king, who had married a wicked woman. Ahab himself was wicked enough, but he had married a more devious and a more idolatrous pagan, Jezebel. And she has the desire to to introduce Baal worship into the land of Israel. In fact, look at the previous chapter, chapter 16, at verses 29 and following. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all those who went before him. And as his And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho, he and his foundation at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of its youngest son of Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. And so what we see really in that passage is that Ahab is relentless. He doesn't care about life. What he cares about is himself. And he selfishly married a pagan daughter, this woman Jezebel. 
And so it seems here that God has chosen Elijah, who steps in the scene in verse 1 of chapter 17, to be this chosen instrument to bring this adulterous and haughty Israel to her knees. The word or name Elijah means the Lord Jehovah is my God. But Jezebel was determined to wipe out the worship of Jehovah in Israel. The God she wanted to serve, as we've mentioned, is Baal, who was the Phoenician fertility God who sent rain upon the bountiful crops. And so here we see in verse 1, this first face-off between Elijah and, in a sense, Jezebel. It's really, it's really Ahab, but Jezebel's behind it, right? In fact, in the next chapter, in 1 Kings 18, is the confrontation of the 450 prophets of Baal where God answers by fire. But this is the first face-off. This is the first time that Elijah is catapulted into public ministry, and the first thing he does is confront the king, which, by the way, would oftentimes cost you your head. But Elijah doesn't care. He's going to stand for truth. He's going to speak the word of God, and he tells him there's going to be a drought, no dew, no rain, until the Lord allows. According to what Jesus said in Luke 4, as well as James 5.17, we know this drought lasted for three and a half years. James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, part of the purpose of the drought is actually the punishment of God upon his own people for disobeying his covenant. And in Leviticus chapter 26 and in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there are warnings issued by Moses to the people of God that if they would disobey God or worship other gods, that God would bring drought to the land. That's exactly what's happening here in 1 Kings 17. Israel begins to abandon God, and so God chooses to discipline his own children by bringing this drought into the land. At the same time, however, this is a blatant demonstration that Elijah's God is superior to Jezebel's God. It just so happens that Jezebel's God is the fertility God that is responsible for bringing rain and flourishing and nourishing the crops. And so part of what's going on here is we're seeing that God is superior to Baal. Baal's supposed to be in control of the weather and reproduction, but we know God is. God is making it clear to everyone that he is in control of the weather and the seasons. He is in control of the rain and the crops. He is in control of the growing and of the harvesting. He is in control of the wind and the waves. God is in control of every major thing that happens in the universe on a grand scale. And God is in control of every minor thing that happens on a small personal scale. And so what we see here is that Elijah is standing up to this wicked king and his wife. And it's God who ordains and brings all things to pass. And he brings things to pass not out of a capricious motive, but out of a caring motive. It's because God cares. God does not hate you. God loves you. God is not one who is trying to just ruin your life. He's trying to reward the life of obedience. So God does what he does not only to get our attention, but also to win our affection. And as we look at this passage this morning, we can't help but ask ourselves, are you trusting in God? Are you worshiping him in the midst of rain and in the midst of the drought? Are you more prone to complain about what he's not doing 
or are you more prone to change into the image of Christ because of what he is doing? And so all of us really have a lesson to learn this morning as we look at the example of Elijah and of this widow here who also chooses to obey God in the midst of a very difficult time. Well, next, let's look at the supply of Elijah's God. In verses 2 through 7, we're going to see how God supplies a great number of things here for Elijah because God will take care of his own. He will take care of Elijah. He will provide for him in a very unique way. And the first thing that he does in verses 2 through 3 is he provides for him a place to dwell. Look at verses 2 and 3. We read this, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And so after making this declaration of this drought in Gilead, Elijah then heads east to the brook of Cherith, which is again on the east side of the Jordan River. And apparently, Elijah is to hide in a ravine next to this brook, where God will supply him what he needs to eat and also what he needs to drink. This brook, this place of Cherith, east of the River Jordan, would have been a rural place. It would have been a place out of the public view. It would have been a private place to remove Elijah from the potential danger of Ahab pursuing him. And so we see that in the midst of him walking with God, God provides a place for him to stay. Not only does God provide a place to stay, but he also provides a daily sustenance. Look at verses four through six. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went down and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and lived by the brook Cherith at the east of the Jordan and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and drank from the brook. So God controls not only the weather, but also all of nature itself. He sovereignly orchestrates that these birds, these ravens would bring Elisha food. God was the supplier and the ravens were the delivery system. And this is, this is interesting because ravens are omnivores, which means they eat both meat and plants. In fact, they're not very well known for even caring for their own young. They were versatile creatures known for uh, finding nutrition in different places, feeding on carrion, insects, cereal grains, berries, fruit, small animals, and food waste. And so the fact that these birds brought bread and meat at all is one thing, but it's another thing entirely that they didn't eat of any of the portions of the food that they brought. In other words, these ravens are acting entirely contrary to their own nature, definitely controlled by the sovereign hand of God. And just as God provided manna and quail to the Israelites in the wilderness, he is now providing meat and bread uh, to his prophet Elijah in a miraculous way. And so in the midst of discipline, God will provide your daily sustenance in him. In the midst of difficult times in your life, whether you're bringing it upon yourself, maybe from your own waywardness, or whether you're trying to repent and walk with God, but you're struggling, you need to know and be encouraged that God will still sustain his children. We also see this in verse 7, another opportunity for Elijah to trust in God. Another opportunity for him to trust in God, for this is what happens in verse 7. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So maybe Elijah was thinking, oh great, thanks a lot, God. 
I said what I said to Ahab. I thought I had it made hiding in this ravine. I had bread and meat every day. But now this brook has dried up. Most commentators think that maybe he lived there for about a year. And finally, the drought had its effect. The brook dried up. And so God's like, hey, I'm going to have to lead you to another place. Notice in Scripture, there's no record of complaining. There's no record of why God. Not that it's wrong to ask God why, but we need to ask him with a dependent, trusting heart and not with a complaining, spoiled brat heart, right? So the idea here is Elijah is just going to follow God. One thing to another from here from Gilead over to, uh, to Cherioth. Now he's going to have to travel to another place. He's going to follow God. You know what? God always gives clear direction what to do. Now, you and I don't hear the audible voice of God. You and I need to be careful about even ever claiming to hear an impression from God, lest you be led astray. But you and I can always claim the Word of God. And so when we come to the Word of God, we can know that God's Word always tells us what to do in any given moment. You say, Adam, like what? Like trust God. Like obey Him. Like whatever is in His Word, to meditate on His Word day and night, to obey Him every moment of every day, to love your wife, to love your husband, to raise your kids, to give to the church, to reach others with the gospel, to live a life of integrity every day. God cares way more about your morality then he cares about what decision you're going to make between jobs and schools and what car to buy. And so the idea this morning is we need to ask ourselves, of, of, has God, through the direction of Scripture, ever brought you to a place where there was no hope? And the answer is no. He will never bring you to a place without hope because if you're in Christ, you have a living hope in the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. And no matter how difficult times may be, God will always provide a way out. God will always provide an opportunity for you in that moment to walk by faith and to trust in God. And even if the way out is death itself, it's still a way out because you're guaranteed heaven by him who died for your sins. And so the idea here is we're seeing that we need to just be encouraged that God is going to provide. Maybe you're here this morning and you just lost your job. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a bill you can't pay. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a marriage that's on the rocks. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking as a mom, if that kid disobeys me one more time, so help me God. I'm good. Well, then you need to trust in the Lord. In your parenting, in what you do, there is never anything beyond what God is able in that very moment to sustain you with his truth, with his word. I'm so thankful for Psalm 42, 5. Why? Are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation. You say, Adam, I don't have a whole lot to hope in today. You have Jesus. If you've repented of your sins, you've been saved by a merciful God who will deliver you. And no matter what your circumstance is today, you have the cross as an example of one who suffered well. And you have the cross which accomplished for you a reason for you to rejoice and have hope on this very day. And so this leads us to our second heading this morning. Number two, God's promise when there is no hope. God's promise when there is no hope. And first, let's look at the blindness of obedience. The blindness of obedience. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. 
Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And so just like that, Elijah picks up from where he is. He had some 80 to 90 miles into the area of Zarephath, which was actually located in Sidon, which is on the northwest side of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. If you've been listening, I already told you Jezebel was from Sidon. And so the idea here is that Elijah goes from a place of safety, a place of what seemed to be abundant provision, a place of hiding to into enemy territory. He now goes outside of the boundary of Israel. He's now in Jezebel's backyard, knowing that they're probably looking for him and want to kill him. And yet he's going to obey God. And now he's got a widow that's supposed to be caring for him. And anybody would have known that a widow would have had little means, if any, to really care for a grown man. And so we see Elijah, though, just obeying God blindly. God, you said it. I'm going to do it. The Word of God says it. I'm going to obey because I trust you, the good and gracious provision of God. Well, not only does Elijah follow and obey God blindly, but also does this widow. This widow here, as she sees Elijah comes in, we'll read about later how he's actually staying there at her house. That's where he he, uh, ends up living. But he just kind of says to her as, as she's gathering sticks there to, to go get him something to drink. And as she begins to obey him immediately, she's going to get him something to drink. Then he gives another request. And so we just see this attitude of blind obedience, not only in, the, in Elijah, but in the widow, in this mother. She's, she was busy doing what moms do. She was gathering sticks, which may seem like a menial task to you, but she was preparing a meal for her child. She was busy doing what moms do, caring for her family, trying to care for her household. And I just want to pause for a second and say thank God for women, for moms who are willing to care for their own children. Thank God for women who are willing to sacrifice, moms who are willing to do whatever it takes to sacrifice and put another's need in front of their own. In fact, in that chapter I alluded to earlier, Proverbs 31, the excellent wife, we read this, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. This is the biblical view of an excellent wife, not what our culture says. In the midst of the culture we live in now, they mock stay-at-home moms as if it's some kind of second-class citizen, some kind of you-couldn't-make-it-in-the-real-world mentality, whereas the Bible honors moms who care for their kids. Now, before you misunderstand me, I don't believe it's a sin for a mom to work in the workplace, but I do believe, especially when the children are young, that it is wisest for a woman with it all, if at all possible, to stay at home and to raise her children in the fear of the Lord. I understand there, there are sometimes extenuating circumstances and, uh, that, that can happen, but what I'm talking about in general is that our culture mocks that idea of that stay-at-home mother. And we live in a culture that mocks homeschool mothers, and they mock anything about a mom who's simple and caring for their children at home, where God exalts that kind of mom. And God exalts that mom because she's doing what really matters. And so I just want to say thank God for, for women in our church and other Christian women that you know who place their children over their career. 
who place their husband over their boss, who place God's word over the world's standards. Thank God for godly moms who are picking up sticks every moment of every day to prepare for their family. And I want to say thank you for your tireless and for your selfless labor for kids like me who grew up not appreciating or really being thankful because I didn't have a clue and what it meant to be a godly mom, other than watching my mom's example of loving me and caring for me. And I pray that she would be honored on this day, as well as my wife, as well as my mother-in-law, as well as all moms out there, right? We want to honor all of them who you guys do a great job. I'm so grateful, and you need to be honored. And you can learn a lot this morning from this example of this widow who was, uh, who was also a mother. Well, next in this text, we see this the burden of obedience, verses 11 through 14, the burden of obedience. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And so as this mother was going to get Elijah a drink. He apparently saw a willingness to obey and to follow the directive that he gave her. And so then he asked her for the unthinkable. He asked her for her last loaf of bread. Now, he might not have known that she was literally on her very last straw, but it becomes apparent here that she said, look, I got nothing left. I'm trying to gather some sticks enough to cook bread for one more meal, and then we're going to die. To which he says, hey, that's good. Just bring me something first. Seems a little selfish at first, but we know it's not, for that's exactly what God had directed Elijah to say to this woman. This is an opportunity for her, potentially in that very moment, to make a decision to follow God by following God's servant Elijah or to disobey God, which would have huge ramifications on her life and on the life of that child. And so here, uh, she decides to sacrifice And she is going to, as we see, obviously here, obey. But sometimes we need to know that God asks us to do things that are hard. Sacrifice is hard. Giving up your life is hard. Giving up your time and effort is hard. Obedience, many times, can be very hard. You say, Adam, I don't want to talk about that. Or you might say, well, how about 1 John 5, 3? Don't you know your New Testament? which says that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So why are you saying obedience is hard when the New Testament clearly says that the commandments of God are not a burden? Well, the answer is it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. If you have a perspective that it's all about me, 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 and you tend to be a complainer and you're selfish and it's all about complaining about what you don't have, then it will be hard for you to obey. Because you're doing it in your own strength out of a complaining attitude. But if you're doing it as a grateful worshiper, if you're doing it as a transformed servant, if you're doing it as a dependent obeyer, then following God's directives and following his commands are not ultimately hard, but they are a blessing that lead us to rest and reward. 
I can tell you this, it's harder not to obey than to obey. You may think in that moment, not obeying is easier, but it will only make life harder. For we're told that in Proverbs 13, 15, that the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of a believer, while for a moment it seems to be hard, I mean, let's just, I'm just being honest. Of course, it's hard to obey sometimes, but if I'm doing it in God's strength, he gives us the strength to do it. He enables us to see it as a blessing, not ultimately as a burden, and he allows us to receive great reward for obeying. And so understand that this woman in this moment was pulled between her very nature to care for her only child or to obey this prophet who she never met, and they would die a little sooner. What is she going to do? She's, she's got to make a decision here, and notice that she chooses to do what God says. And in that very moment, she's demonstrating to us that she desires to have a God-focused home and not a child-focused home. In that moment, she makes a choice to go with God over her own children. And I'm afraid that decision is hard for many mothers to make unless we're really having a biblical view of like, you know what, I'm obeying God no matter what. The more attention you pay to God and his word, the more you and your children will be blessed. We're tempted at times to disobey God and to care for our children, but the word of God and caring for our children are not diametrically opposed to each other. But as you obey God and as you walk by faith, your child will be cared for. And so with this perspective on obedience, we see not only is it a burden from a human perspective, but we also see next the blessings of obedience, the blessings of obedience in verses 15 and 16. And she went on and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that was spoken by Elijah. By obeying God, she was able to feed her child, not just one more meal, but potentially for a lifetime. The Lord had honored her faith, and this woman had had, had, had her needs fulfilled for food miraculously. And the idea is you've got to obey God, you've got to trust God, and the blessings of God come from obedience to God. The blessings of God come from obedience to to God. I mean, consider what Malachi the prophet said about giving to the Lord in Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour for you a blessing until there is no need. That's exactly what he's doing for this woman. Or consider what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 31 and following. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I wonder how many of us are seeking these things over seeking God, that we're seeking for comfort, even in a good way. It's nothing wrong for wanting to feed your child. But here she had a choice to make. By God's grace, she chose to walk by faith, and God blessed her richly for it. Our third heading this morning is this, God's protection from death itself. God's protection from death itself. Verse 17, we're going to see how death comes to us all. 
death comes to us all. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Well, surely this woman has got to be thinking, oh, great. Thanks, God. I obey you. I follow you. You provide bread. That's good. But now my kid is dead. My child has died. But you understand that this is just a reminder that that life can be hard. I mean, all of us wish the movie ended at verse 16. That's a great place to stop it. She trusted God. She got blessed. End of story. Life is good. That we know just around the corner comes the next trial and the next trial and the next trial. And sometimes God is working these smaller trials to work up to the bigger trial to help your faith be increased so that you might truly walk completely dependent on God. Even in God's goodness and faithfulness to his children, death still comes to us all. Obedience to God does not make you invincible. It makes you vulnerable to whatever it is that God has for you. And so you have to trust him by faith. We see also here that death comes to test our faith. Death comes to test our faith. In verse 18, she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. So here she's really being tested. Do we really trust God that he is doing the best, whether by life or by death? Do we praise him only when our loved ones live? Or do we also praise him when our loved ones die? You see, death is a transition of the one who dies from this life into the next. But death is a test for us to remain, who, who remain, to see if we will submit to the sovereign plan of God, to see whether or not we'll walk by faith at life's most grueling events. And so this death of her son causes this mother to remember her own sin. She starts to feel a little bit guilty. Maybe I've done something that gave way to his death. And so she is struggling with what to go on, how to think about it. And so she's coming to Elijah, the man of God, for help. And there we see here that the answer might be this. Death comes to bring life. Death comes to bring life. Verses 19 and following. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he had lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in uh, the Lord, of the, 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 the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Can't get it out of my mouth. So we see at this point, finally, she's come full circle because she's a woman who walks by faith. What's interesting to me is this is the first account in the scripture of a resurrection. God chose to give us a little picture of the gospel to this lady in Sidon, to this lady here by Zarephath, by, by this lady uh, who, who's living here in this area, God chooses her out of all the people in the Bible to announce the fact that God is the God of the living 
and the debt. Now, you had Enoch who walked with God, walked up into heaven, right? You have um, Elijah who here real soon is going to hop on a fiery chariot and go and be with God. But this is the first time in the Old Testament that there's a woman or a person, anybody, who figures out the fact that God is the God of life. He God is God over death. And anytime you read about a resurrection, you've got to be thinking a little bit about the resurrection of Christ. Every resurrection previews the grand resurrection of them all, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you can't even read about the fact that Elijah spread himself over this kid three days, uh, three times rather, to not think about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead uh, uh, three days later. And so while this is an amazing reminder here that death is there to really teach us about life. This is a preview of what is yet to come. We also learn a little bit about prayer here, that Elijah is an earnest man of prayer. We've already alluded a little bit to James chapter 5 that reminds us that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In James 5, 15 and 16, we read, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, and it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And so even there in that very context about the prayer of, an, uh, of a righteous man availeth much, we have the idea that the sick person can be made well. We have the idea that God is in control, and so uh, Elijah was a man who persevered in prayer. And so here's my question to you this morning. What would have happened to that mom if that mom had not have put God first? What would have happened to that mom if Elijah said, hey, I need something to drink, and she did not obey, said, I don't know, you get your own drink. What would have happened to that mom if he would have said, hey, get me some bread, even though it's your last meal, take care of me first, and then go take care of yourself. What if she'd have said, no, 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 I'm going to take care of myself, and if you're still around, we'll see that what we can do. What would have happened? She would have died. Her son would have died. We would not have had her listed there by Christ as an example of salvation to someone outside of Israel. We would not have seen her listed in Hebrews 11 as a woman of faith. We see that she's a woman of faith because God granted her the faith to believe and to walk. And we see her pronouncement of it at the end of the chapter again. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now this woman has two stories to tell her son. When we had no bread, God provided bread so that we could live. And when you had no life, God provided life so that you could live on this planet. My friend, death comes to bring life. <clears throat> and all of this, in one way or another, pictures the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you and I might live. And if you're here this morning and you're a mom who wants to give the greatest gift you could possibly give to your children, it would be the message of the gospel that you would both proclaim to them God's saving grace on the fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and he never died. And then he died a sinner's death on the cross, though he was sinless. And God raised him from the dead that you can be saved. Death ultimately brings life. Well, here's just a couple of take-home application points to think about. A mother's faith trusts God no matter what. A mother's faith trusts God no matter what. Mom, are you walking by faith this morning? Are you trusting God that His Word is true? 
and that his love is never ending? Do you trust him when he says that you need to submit to your husband and to respect him? Do you trust him when he says you need to raise your children, you need to discipline them and love them even when it's tough? Do you trust him that you be content with whatever God has provided for you? Are you trusting God no matter what this morning? I pray that you would be encouraged to trust him to demonstrate real faith. Also, a mother's faith obeys God even when it doesn't make sense. There's time in your life where it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense from your human perspective. And so, mom, are you obeying God even when it doesn't make sense? It might not make sense again from your perspective, but it always makes sense from God's perspective. Walk by faith. Obey him even when it doesn't make sense. And lastly, a mother's faith influences the lives of her children more than anything else. Mom, do you have a powerful impact on your kids? Do you want to? Do you want to impact them for good and for the gospel? Then it starts with not focusing on them, but focusing on God. It starts not with trying to provide everything that you think they may need, but instead walking with God and trusting Him to provide what they need. If you want to leave a legacy where your children will rise up and call you blessed, then obey God out of a heart of faith, and you will influence your kids more than you could ever imagine. Teach your children to follow and obey Christ, and you will have a huge impact on their soul. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the opportunity to look in 1 Kings 17 this morning and just to see a little window of the gospel, even here about the resurrection of this widow's son. I pray, God, that we would be encouraged by this example that we see before us, God, that we would look to Christ. And I just pray for that mom who may be feeling weak or downcast or having a difficult time. God, I pray that she'd be inspired this morning by the story of 1 Kings 17 and that she would be renewed in her faith to trust you and to obey you no matter what. God, I pray that you would do it through the gospel power of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help husbands and fathers and children uh, spend the day today, maybe thinking about how we could come alongside our moms and to thank them and support them and to care for them and to love them and to give honor to where honor is due. God, thank you for uh, giving us mothers. And I pray that we would be a blessing to them and point them uh, to Christ to find their strength and their encouragement and their joy in following Jesus. Thank you for the moms of this church, God. Sustain them. Fill them with great joy. On this day, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.